Sermon text reading is from Hebrews 13, verses 4 through 7. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way in life, and imitate their faith. This is God's word, you may be seated. Well, let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, by man's calendar, we are walking into a new year. But you were on the throne yesterday, today, and forever. And we have come to give you praise. And we have come to give you our attention as we come to your word. And I would ask that everything that is said now would be true and clear and profitable for today and for eternity. To the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be looking at the four verses that were read for you by John a few minutes ago. Seven years from now, last week, we will celebrate Christmas on this day. Seven years from now, we'll have a Christmas service. Seven years from today will be 2030, and we will have a New Year's service as well. Uh, that is if the Lord tarries. Uh, it's certainly my hope that, uh, that in seven years we'll, we'll be gone home and that Christ has returned and that it's all over. And that would be spectacular. In the meantime, however, whether we make it the next seven years or not, we have been called in the book of Hebrews to run the race and to finish the course well. And we are told in chapter 11 that there is a great cloud of witnesses who is cheering us on, led by those witnesses is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has run the race before us, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's really what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is showing the original hearers and us that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme in everything. He is supreme as high priest. He is supreme as sacrifice. He is supreme as king. He is supreme as Lord. And there is no reason for people of faith to drift back, to put confidence in anything other than the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called, dear brothers and sisters, to run the race well. Our running the race does not earn our salvation, but our race is toward that which God has secured for us in Christ, which is his presence in his place at his time. 
and that's why we're running the race. At this point in the letter, and we're nearly done in these four verses that we'll look at this morning, the author is talking about the topic of worship, believe it or not. The topic of worship was introduced to us in chapter 12, verse 28, which I want to reread for us. And it goes like this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And the passage continues, as I mentioned the last two weeks, there's no breaks in chapters and verses in the original, but they've been given to help dumb preachers like me make preaching easier. And when he talks about reverence with, I'm sorry, with, about worship with reverence and awe, he begins to describe things that we would not normally or ordinarily think of as worship. Last week, I know a lot of you couldn't be here, and that's totally fine, but we talked about three things that were identified as worship in the verses that preceded what we're looking at today. The first of which was brotherly love, and we described what that was and how that played out. And the second thing that fit the category of worship was to remember those who are mistreated and are in prison. And I, and I told you how difficult that was because for most of us, we don't have the experience of knowing those who are overtly mistreated or imprisoned but that we have brothers and sisters around the world who know it firsthand and know it today. And the third thing that we looked at last week was also what it meant to have hospitality and what it meant to have a hospitality toward the people of God, which is predominantly to whom this passage is speaking. This morning, we're going to continue that list, and we're going to look at three more things, and they are, again, three things that we would not ordinarily think about in terms of worship. The first of which is, is marriage and the sanctity of the marriage bed. Uh, it's not the first thing that pops to my mind when I think of worship. The second of which is, is how we look at money. And, and that is a part of our worship as well. And then the third is, is how we look at and treat our leaders in the church. And then there's a great big surprise at the end. And so I'm going to just walk us through these three things, and they begin with verse 4, and I just want to read verse 4, and, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about sex and marriage and the marriage bed here. But it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now that, that verse ordinarily wouldn't necessarily be thought of in the categories of worship, as I have mentioned, although marriage in the New Testament is used as the example and the picture of Christ's love for the church. So obviously marriage goes beyond just the mere significance of husband and wife coming together. It has a much deeper spiritual 
context and all the rest of it. And it says here that marriage is to be held in honor among all of you, those inside of marriage and those outside of marriage. And so I want to say a few things about marriage here because marriage in our culture and Christian context, most importantly, is, is, is put so far on a pedestal that it's misunderstood or it's thought of so lightly that it's misunderstood. The first thing that I want to say about marriage is this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that marriage is the preeminent and the relationship that all people should strive to be in. Nowhere in the scripture does it say you are a better person if you are married than if you are single. And certainly nowhere in the Bible does it say you are spiritually better off if you are married than if you are single. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians says almost the exact opposite. He says it's better to be single than to be married if you're able to maintain that status because you can devote undivided attention to seeing the kingdom of God expanded, whereas if you are married, your loyalties are divided between one obligation and another. So that being said, despite that reality, marriage is to be honored by those who are inside marriage and those who are single. In other words, it is an institution that is God-ordained and God-created, and it should be treated with the respect that God has ordained, and nothing should be done by those who are either inside the marriage or who are outside the marriage to bring any level of dishonor to the union that has brought two people together. And I also want to say the Bible is very clear on one point. Marriage is between one man and one woman, and it is for life. Which is very, very countercultural, is it not? One man, one woman, and for life. Whereas our culture says a lot of different things. Marriage is a wonderful convenience as long as it works, as long as it does not inconvenience either one of the parties who are brought into that union. Vows are said now at weddings, and, and these are actual vows, that says, I will, I will stay married to you as long as our love shall last. How's that? I will stay with you as long as we don't grow apart. Not until death do us part. That's a very interesting phenomenon. And, and I would doubt that the writer of Hebrews would call that honor of marriage, whether a single person or within marriage as a result. The, the verse goes on and says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Now, the adulterer. 
Um, and, and, and I want to say this about that. When it talks about the sexually immoral, by and large here it's speaking of the single individual who thinks of uh, sex as something that is to be enjoyed at one's convenience or leisure or when opportunity presents itself or so on and so forth. The Bible uses the term fornicate. And it says that those who are outside of marriage who uh, take sex casually will be judged. And those who have sex with somebody outside of marriage that are married with a partner other than their husband or wife, they're called adulterers. They will be judged by God. And I want to stop here and say something about that as well. There is not a sin from which man cannot repent and for which man cannot be forgiven. And this includes sexual infidelity either inside or outside of marriage. There's no greater depth to that sin. There may be greater earthly consequence for that sin. But in the great grand scheme of things, there is no greater weight on that sin. And man can repent and be forgiven and move forward in regardless of whether that sin was inside or outside of marriage and so on and so forth. So it is not a sin which is branded by God to a greater or lesser degree. However... In the culture in which we live, in the culture in which these uh, Jewish Christians were living, sex was treated so casually that even in the church there was a tendency to believe that there was no consequence and that it did not matter. And that the sanctity of the bed, period, whether married bed or single bed, was to be taken lightly. And the writer wants his readers and us to understand that that is not something God takes lightly. Many of us have had challenges in this area, but God can forgive. Repentance is a reality. We can move forward from these things. But to act as if what God has created for the union of a man and a woman in marriage lightly is a grave error and faulty thinking. And, and the church has got to come to grips with that. And, and we need to stand our ground. We as individuals need to say, there's one place for sex between one man, one woman, who have been united in marriage for life. And that is a reality. But more than that, that is worship. In other words, our relationship with God is benefited or hindered by how we conduct ourselves in that category. For a single individual to stay chaste for the rest of their lives is an honor and a form of worship to God. For a husband and wife to remain pure in that regard, in their bed, is worship toward God, which is an extraordinary reality. And now we move to the second category. Whew, everybody can breathe now. Dave's done talking about sex. 
Keep your life, verse 5, free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, the Bible has an awful lot to say about money. And we got through Matthew here this past year, and, and Jesus has an awful lot to say about money. He talked about the rich young ruler who it was more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. The Bible says a tremendous amount about wealth. Here it is speaking of two things in particular, and I'm not going to belabor it overly long. First of all, we are to keep ourselves free from the love of money, and we are to be content with what we have. So the issue at hand is what do we love and what are we content with? That's really the issue at hand. What are we content with? And so to start with, let me say this, and I've said this before, money in and of itself has, it's not good, bad, or otherwise. It's just money. And to have money is not a bad thing. Does this text tell me that I should not change jobs because if I move over to this job, I will get a raise? Does it tell me that if I have a job in sales, I shouldn't work hard because if I sell more, I would make more? No, that's not the issue at hand. The question is, what is the motivation behind it and what are we content with? So, for example, let's just say sales dry up and the opportunity to make more sales doesn't exist. But you have a base salary that keeps you, you know, in, in biscuits and gravy. Are you content? Are we content with what we have versus what we do not have? And that's the rub, you see. That's the challenge. That's the difficult place. Because all of us, no matter who we are and what our position is on the economic scale, there is a tendency to believe that if I had just a little bit more, it's not that I would be happier, but I'd have just a slight, slightly greater level of security or a slightly greater level of satisfaction, or perhaps a slightly greater level of contentment. And the challenge with that is, is not so much the scale, but the challenge with that is I am putting trust and confidence in something other than God himself and what he has provided. I'm looking for contentment someplace other than where I should be looking for contentment. And, and the verse concludes with this sentence, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, why has he put that in the context of money? Well, that sentence is a quote from Joshua chapter 1. Now, in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua has just been handed the reins of being the leader of the people of Israel right after the, the death of Moses. 
And his job is going to be to take those people and move into the promised land and deliver them what God has promised, all right? And Joshua had a very, very difficult job. A couple of million people, they all grumbled. None of them were happy. Very few of them had faith and trust in what God was doing. That's number one. Joshua's career was, was predominantly compro- I mean, composed of war. You know, he was a warrior, and so he was constantly going to battle against this group of people and that group of people and this nation and that nation. And, and he had these constant challenges to faith. I mean, he was asked by God to walk around a city once a day for six days and then twice in one day on the seventh day and blow horns and that God was going to deliver the city into his hands. Well, that's a, that's a test of faith. And those kinds of tests were his throughout his whole career. And you know what? He never got a salary. Never once was he paid for this job. And so when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it takes the eyes off of the context and says, regardless of your circumstances, what needs to be focused on is, I am in control. Not your money, not your job, not what you can find contentment in, not what you believe you can rely on. I am the one that you can rely on. And Joshua, by God's good grace, spent his career doing that. And you know what? That was worship. Not putting trust in money, in things that might bring contentment for a moment, but finding your contentment in a God who will never leave you or forsake you. What an extraordinary picture of worship. And now we get to verse 7. Now verse 7, I want to tell you, I have not heard it done, but it would be a very tempting verse for a preacher like me to take out of context and really use to advantage and to benefit the preacher. Because this is how it reads. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I mean, you can see it, can't you? It's right there on the platter, ready to pluck. It's a, it's a humbling verse because what is being spoken of here are those who have gone before us. Those who have finished the race. Those who are seated in the heavenlies. Those who have heard those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's not me. You see, here's what's being asked. The writer is saying, is there someone in your life who has finished the course who when you think of them, 
you think of God's word being spoken into your life, who was faithful and true throughout their lives and finished well. I hope that every one of you in the room who have a relationship with God through Christ can think of at least one person. Right now, I've only got a couple, really and truly. It's, it's not like there's a long list of these kind of people who walk into our life, you know, who speak God's word into your life, who are worthy of imitation and who are worthy of consideration. I, I could give you my examples, but, but it would only be self-serving but, but I want us to understand the text. You know, when it says, consider those leaders who spoke God's word to you and, and imitate their faith, we are not worshiping them. We're not praying to them. We are not building little altars in our living room that have their picture and a candle in front of them. There was about their lives something which if we imitate and consider, as the verse says, will draw us closer to Christ. And that is part of worship. We don't worship the individual, not at all. We worship what God did in and through that individual in seeing them finish the course well. I don't know really and truly, if I'm going to be that guy. I, I hope one day that there may be a young man or lady or, or a couple who said there was a part of Dave that was worth imitating. But we don't know yet because I'm not done, see? I'm not there. I haven't crossed the line. But but what a wonderful thing for the writer to say. Imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider that. But also it encourages us to want to finish the course so that our life could be considered worthy of imitation. And, and then we come to this verse 6. And verse 6 is, is really challenging for this reason. And I'm going to read it in just a second. But it sounds like one of those great sound bites that's a pious platitude. Okay? It's great. Let me read it to you. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? Well, I mean, pat the person next to you on the back and say, have no fear. What can man do to you? God's with you. Have a grand day. And then you stop and you think about it, and you think the people that received this letter originally had already had their possessions confiscated by the state. Some of them had been put into prison. 
And we know from history that within a few months or a year or two, these people were going to be persecuted to the point of death, and I mean horrible death, under the Roman Empire. And this guy, this writer, has the audacity to say, do not fear, what can man do to me? Well, these people knew what man could do to them. They knew it. But how do I not fear? Now, now, when you hear those words, I will not fear, what can man do to me? I, I was first drawn to Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, 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 and it, was a, it was a good connection. It was just the wrong one. Because it's actually a quote from Psalm 118, which we already used in our service for the call to worship and our corporate reading. Now, Psalm 118 is a fascinating psalm. Fascinating psalm becomes, it comes at the end of a section of psalms called the Hillel Psalms. And the Hillel Psalms are Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Now, all God's word is inspired, and not one psalm is better than another. But there are groups of psalms that were used by Israel in different ways. And the Hillel Psalms really stood out front and center for big celebrations. And they were hymns or psalms that were memorized by most people in all of Israel. And the Hillel Psalms, in particular Psalm 118, was a psalm that was memorized and sung at Passover. Okay? All right. So I want to tell you a little bit more about this psalm because it's absolutely fascinating. We don't exactly know who the author is, but the breadth of conservative scholarship believes that even though we don't know for sure and certain, it was a psalm of David. And we know that it was sung at Passover. And most people believe, now hear me out when I say this, that it was the psalm that was sung by Jesus and his disciples on the night of Passover, the night that he was betrayed, the night before began his trial and crucifixion. So when we turn to Psalm 118, what I want you to think of is I want you to think of Jesus singing this hymn on the night that he was betrayed, all right? Let me read one quote from me from one scholar just to hear a couple of words about Psalm 118. Though this was likely David's psalm, it was also Jesus' psalm. This is preeminently the triumph song of the Christ. He is the ideal servant. He is the perfect priest. He is the leader of his people. How much all these words meant to him as he sang them on that night in the upper room. Okay, so the quote for us, the quote for us is, I will not fear what can man do to me. So turn to Psalm 118. I'm almost done, but bear with me on this stuff. This is the goods. This psalm that was sung in Passover by Jesus moves us out of the pious platitudes do not fear for what can man do to me. Now hear Jesus singing this because it is a messianic psalm. 
David wrote it about Jesus to come, and I'm going to start at verse 5. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns in the name of the Lord, and I cut them off. Now notice all that was in the first person, right? It's all in the first person. This is what happened to Jesus. Now if you look with me at verse 22, notice the pronouns here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. What Christ has accomplished, what we can desire, save us, give us success because you have faced what man can do to man and you have cut them off. You see? And then you have become the chief cornerstone. And this is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in us. And so the writer of Hebrews takes this little snippet from a hymn that everyone who was reading this originally would have had memorized. And he says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Back to the first person. You see what I'm saying? Christ faced what man could do. We can claim it, if you will. And now we can say, I can have no fear of what man does to me because of what Christ has accomplished. And that is the essence of worship. That is the whole picture. I can stand secure knowing I know what man can do to me. They can take my life. But Christ holds my soul. Christ holds my soul. And it is secure because he has faced what man can do. And we can say, give us success. What an extraordinary, extraordinary picture here. Let's pray. Father, all praise belongs to you for what you have done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.